Well, I'm excited to kick this series off. It's different than any marriage series we've ever done before at New Spring in that we wanted to give you the chance to set the topics for this series. And here's how we did it. Last year, we encouraged every couple at New Spring to take something called the Deep Love Assessment. It's a really cool tool that was developed by our friends, clinical psychologists, doctors, Les and Leslie Parrott. And what would happen is couples would go online and they'd answer a bunch of questions about their relationship, and they'd get back this really cool report that tells them all about um, their specific relationship, about their personalities and about their money styles and things that they need to work on and things that they're doing really well, and really just helps pinpoint how this specific couple um, can move the needle in their relationship and, and, and experience forward movement. So that was cool, and we wanted every couple at New Spring to be able to do this, and we tried to make that possible for everybody. But the other thing that was really neat about it is we had almost a thousand people in our New Spring excuse me, about a thousand couples in our new spring group that signed up to do this. And so because we were all part of one group, New Spring got a really neat little report that just tells us about the average couple here. It was completely anonymous, but it told us, hey, here's what New Spring couples are working on and what they want to do better with. And so we came up with the top five things. We really looked through the whole report and tried to figure out what are the top five things New Springers are telling us they want to work on. So this week, we're going to talk about conflict and how you handle fights and especially how we manage our tempers. Uh, then next week, uh, we're going to be talking about how you grow together how you can grow to grow, excuse me, I can't say this right today, how you, can't grow, how you can grow closer to God as a couple. One of the things that was very clear uh, in, a, in the report that we got is that couples were saying, we know it's important for us to get close to God as a couple, but it's just not happening for us, and we really want to work on that. So next week, my dad's going to talk about that. The week after that, we're going to talk about money. Money is the number one thing that couples fight about, and we definitely heard you loud and clear that New Spring couples want to work on how they interface with each other about finances. And then the next week, we're going to talk talk about sex and romance and how to kick the passion up a notch in your relationship. And all the guys are going, well, that's one week we're coming to. I don't know about the other weeks, but um, I'm putting that one down. We're going to be there for that, right? And then the last week, we're going to talk about stress and resilience and how do you bend and not break when life's pressures and sometimes even the relationship can feel a little overwhelming. So did we get it okay? Does that sound right? The top five topics that we felt like couples were telling us that we needed to talk about. So this week, we're going to start off by talking about how you handle conflict, how you handle fights. And uh, actually, I heard a story some years ago, and this is what happens when you grow up a pastor's kid, you hear all kinds of stories like this. But I, I heard a story of this one couple and their kind of unique way of handling conflict. When they got married, this lady told her husband, she said, uh, look, I know that we're, you know, this is one of those 100% relationships, the two become one, we're bonded, no secrets, no privacy, I'm transparent with you, you're transparent with me, I totally get that, but I'd like to ask for one favor, just one small favor, I have this shoebox and I've written my name on it and I'm going to put it in our closet when we get married and I do not want you to look in the shoebox. As a matter of fact, I don't even want you to ask about what's in the shoebox. Don't shake it. Try to figure out what's in there. This is my shoebox. I just need this little corner of the world to myself. Can you do that? Can you let me have this one thing that's all mine and you don't look at it? And he said, well, I'm kind of a curious fellow, but I, I guess that's not too big of a thing to ask. Okay, all right, you can, you can do that, and I, I won't bother you about it. 50 years of marriage. Every day when he goes to the closet to get his clothes out, he sees this shoebox, and it drives him nuts. What has she got in there? What could she possibly not want me to know about? What in the world is she keeping in that box? But, she, but he was true to his word. 
He didn't ask about it. He didn't try to figure out what was in the box. But about 50 years into their marriage, they were moving from their home to a retirement community, and he was clearing out the closet, and he ran across this box. And he came to her with the box in hand, and he said, I've been a good husband, haven't I? And she said, yeah, you've been all right, I guess. Um, I've been respectful of you. I've, I've, I've tried to meet your needs. And, and, and I'm just asking you, please, would you please just let me know what's in the box? It's been driving me crazy for five decades. I've wanted to know what's in there, and I've never asked you about it. Please, would you just show me what's in the box? And she said, yeah, all right. If it's that big a deal to you, I'll show you what's in there. So they open up the box, and inside the box, there's these two little crocheted dolls, little miniature dolls that have been crocheted. And then there was a wallet. And he looks in the wallet, and there's almost $25,000 in there. And he goes, what's this about? And she said, well, the night, the night before we got married, my mom talked to me about the experience of being married. And she said, you're going to have fights with this man. You're going to have conflict. And sometimes you're going to be able to resolve it. Sometimes you're going to be able to work it out. And if you can, you should. But there are going to be moments where that obstinate man that you've married will not be talked to. He cannot be reasoned with. And you're going to have to realize this is just not going to get any better. And so you're just going to have to walk away from the conflict and just know that pushing it is going to make things worse and find a little corner of the world where you can be by yourself and calm down and maybe, you know, like crochet a doll or something. And then when you're done with that, go put that doll in a little box and walk away from it. And when you walk away from that box, it'll be just sort of like symbolic of the fact that you're walking away from the fight and you're just letting it go. And so the husband sort of scratched his head and he said, so let me get this straight. You crocheted one of these little dolls every time we had a fight that you felt like I couldn't be reasoned with. Every time we had a fight that couldn't be resolved, you crocheted one of these little dolls. She said, yeah. And he kind of got a little bit emotionally touched by that because he thought, our marriage is better than I thought. 50 years of marriage and my wife felt like I was able to handle her feelings and opinions and thoughts. I was able to work with her through all this stuff. Only twice, only twice did my wife ever feel like that I wouldn't work with her on a conflict. And, and he said, that's really amazing. He said, can I ask you a question though? What about the $25,000? And she said, well, I learned some time ago that the craft fair downtown actually buys these little crochet dolls for five bucks a piece. <laughs> and... Uh, So if you're trying to figure out how to handle conflict and you happen to crochet and you want to make some money, I just solved your problem for you. The first four minutes of the talk, but for the rest of us, we need maybe a little bit of a different way of handling things. And it turns out that how you handle conflict is hugely important. It actually may be the number one thing that determines how healthy your relationship is. The the most successful marriage researcher on the planet, John Gottman out at the University of Washington, The reason he's as famous as he is, is after following a group of couples for 20 years, from the time they were newlyweds to 20 years in, he was able to use what he had learned from following them to predict which ones would get divorced and which ones would stay together with 94% accuracy. That's huge. We don't get those kind of values in the social sciences. I mean, it's it's amazing to be able to say we know with 94% accuracy. Well, he says they don't get invited to dinner very much anymore. Nobody wants to know, you know. Um, But do you know how he can predict it? He can predict it with 94% accuracy just by watching how a couple fights. As a matter of fact, Dr. Gottman says it's not how often a couple fights that determines whether they're going to end up together. It's how they fight. So this is important, and I was glad to see that this was something New Spring Couples wanted to work on. And, and beyond that, we wanted to drill down to what is the thing that New Spring Couples are telling us they want to do better on with conflict. And it was very clear, New Spring Couples were saying, we want to manage our emotions better in conflict, we want to work on not losing our temper. 
As a matter of fact, I was talking to a guy in my office recently, was doing some marriage coaching, and this guy told me, he said, Jonathan, if I were to describe for you what conflict conversations are like with my wife, he's like, I would try to maybe give you a, a mental picture of it. And he said, Jonathan, you're a car guy, right? And I said, well, I used to be. When, you know, in my early 20s, I was a mechanic. And he said, perfect, let me, let me give you this. He said, I want you to imagine that you're in an autocross race and you're having to weave and dodge with the car in the orange cones and try to you know, do the pattern. You have to drive fast, but you have to drive very precisely. He's like, when my wife and I are having a normal conversation and there's no tension, he said, it's like going in and out of the cones with a, a finely tuned race car with power steering and it's pretty easy to navigate and I always know I'm gonna get to where I need to go. He's like, but when things start getting tense, he said, it's almost like I've lost my power steering. And he said, now I'm having to really work hard to get in and out of the cones to get to where I need to go. He said, but when one of us loses our temper, it's like the steering linkage breaks and I don't have any control. And all I know is I'm getting ready to hit a wall at 90 miles an hour. And I thought, I know exactly what he's talking about. I mean, it was a brilliant way of explaining it because I've been there. I mean, my wife and I have a great marriage, but our personalities are pretty different. And we see the world in different ways sometimes, and every once in a while, you know, we butt heads a little bit. And sometimes we can have those conversations and we can manage them really well, but other times I lose my temper and things don't go very well. And I know that feeling of feeling like I'm, you know, I'm driving in that car, I'm going 90 miles an hour, and nothing that I do is working and I can see I'm headed towards this wall. And I don't know if your experience is at all like mine, but my experience is, it is in those moments that I do stupid things. Have you ever done something stupid when you've lost your temper? And especially in marriage, that's what I do. I do stupid things. I mean, the first year we were married, I got really upset about something. I was really angry. Wendy said something that really bothered me. And I took our new wireless phone, not a cell phone. This tells you how long ago this was. I took our new wireless phone um, off of its, its holder and I threw it at our fireplace. And I learned that when bricks and electronics meet, the bricks always win. And I looked at my wife, because I was hoping she would get how mad I was, and she looked at me and she was like, well, you were the one who registered for the phone, you know? <laughs> it was stupid. I thought, what? how did that help anything, you know? Or years later, I, I remember I got really upset at Wendy, and I was wanting to show her how mad I was, and I got into my car, and I thought if I slammed the door, you know, some of, some of you are like me, you have the spiritual gift of slamming things. I... I got in the car and I grabbed the handle to the door of the car because I was going to slam it and let Winnie know how mad I was. And when I slammed the door, the handle came off in my hand. And for two years, I drove a car with no handle on the driver's side. And every time I got into my car, I had to face the fact that there was a moment when I was so stupid that I tore apart my own car. Uh, I, I hope that I've evolved a little bit in, in this area, but I will say I've, I have one sort of recent mishap as far as this was concerned. It was, I guess it was about a year ago. And Wendy and I were having one of those you know, spirited discussions. And, and I really felt as though maybe God was calling me to send a text message to her to explain to her everything she was doing wrong and, and maybe give her some alternate things that she could do to do better to make me happy in this relationship. And so I pulled out my phone and I started just, you know, thumbs firing, you know, typing 100 words a minute with my thumbs, telling her how mad I was and how upset I was and using some really good emoticons because they can't see your tone of voice. So if you're really mad, you got to use some of those red-faced emoticons and stuff and let them know how upset you are. And I just hit send and I thought, that'll show her, you know. And then I looked at my phone and I realized the person I sent that to was not my wife. <laughs> and now I have to send a follow-up text because you know you can't just act like it didn't happen. <laughs> what are you going to say? 
well, apparently now you know what my wife has to put up with, you know. <laughs> Sorry about that. I do stupid things when I lose my temper, and I honestly think that we all do. And I want to show you a Bible passage that sort of tells us about that. So if we go to the book of Proverbs, here's what the Bible says about having a really hot temper. The Bible says the people with understanding with understanding, control their anger. And we'll come back to that in a minute and talk a little bit more about what that means. But right now, I just want you to focus on the second half of the verse. A hot temper shows great foolishness. Now, the Bible is a polite book. You will not find the word stupid in the Bible. But this is the Bible word for stupid, right? A person with a hot temper shows great stupidity. And that word shows there in the, in, uh, in the Hebrew, it means to show off. Right? Some of you got a great Christmas gift from your spouse and you went to work and you showed off to your coworkers what your spouse got you for Christmas. Or your kids wanted to take their Christmas gift to school to show off their Christmas gift to their friends. The Bible says a person with a hot temper wants to show off their stupidity. In essence, the Bible says that when we have a hot temper, we become stupidity exhibitionists. Let me show you. That's why I'm texting to somebody. Let me tell you how, what, what Wendy has to put up with. Let me tell you what she has to hear when I'm upset with her. Stupidity exhibitionist. Now, let me ask you a question. Why? Why do we do that when you are not a stupid person and I am not a stupid person? Fair? This is not, I hear this all the time from couples when they talk about their fights and what happens in their fights. They say, it's almost like it wasn't the real me because I don't say things like that and I don't do things like that and I sure wouldn't make a case for the fact that it was the right thing to do. Why do we, why, why do we put stupidity on display when we're not even really, we're, we're not stupid people? Well, here's the answer for it. And for a minute, we're gonna go over into sort of the science side of this and then we'll come back to the Bible scripture in just a second. But here's the reason for it. Most of us are fighting with half of our brain tied behind our back. And it's the truth. Neuropsychologists tell us that when we get really upset, the whole basis of how our brain functions shifts Here's what I want you to think about. At the very front of your brain, kind of behind, the, behind your forehead, at the very front side of the cortex is something we call the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is like the brilliant CEO of your brain. It can do things that are the most advanced things that your brain does. It can solve complex puzzles. It can figure out what's the right answer to a difficult challenge. It, it has the ability to, to compromise. It thinks empathically. What is the other person in the room thinking right now? It, it can figure out what is socially acceptable. Is it okay for me to say this in this environment or is it not okay for me to say this in this environment? And it also does something that I call, and I think this is maybe the most important thing that it does. It does something that I call mental veto power. Okay, so when you get overwhelmed by emotion and the emotion tells you to do something destructive, then this part of your brain a lot of times will come in with logic and say, no, I don't think that would be the smart thing to do and it'll veto that and say, no, I'm not gonna do that, right? So there is this brilliant CEO of your brain that, that does what you do most of the time. This part of your brain is in the driver's seat most of the time, but there is a little bit of a challenge with it. Think about the brilliant CEO at your company. You go, to, you go to the CEO of this large company and you bring them a really, really difficult problem. Hey, we don't know what to do with this P&L statement or, um, or you know, we're trying to figure out how to get our uh, advertising losses under control or something like that and it's bigger than anybody else can figure out so you bring it to the head person and you say, what do we do? And, and the, the brilliant CEO, he or she, crosses their arms, sits back in their chair and stares at the ceiling tiles for five or six minutes and just thinks. And everybody goes, and while we're young, you know, come on, come on, what are you gonna do? But eventually, whenever that person leans forward in their chair and says, all right, this is what we're gonna do, whatever comes out of that person's mouth is brilliant, and everybody in the room goes, ah, that's why they get paid the big bucks. 
because they know how to handle this. They have the ability to handle this, right? But when it comes to processing, they're kind of slow. And you notice that they take their time when they think things through. In almost every circumstance, they take their time. Now, there's another person working at the company. You know this guy, the, the loss prevention person, right? This is the person who has sort of 12 coffee stains on the tie, sort of a disheveled appearance, but a beautifully polished revolver, right? And this person lives for fire extinguishers and, and evacuation routes, and this person lives to assess risk. That's what this person does. And nobody will let this person come to a staff meeting because the only thing this person knows how to say is, we're all gonna die. And in terms of smarts, this person is not the smartest person on the payroll. And the loss prevention person in your brain, which we call the amygdala, a little almond-shaped piece of brain about halfway back and halfway down, this part of your brain, unlike, unlike the brilliant CEO, this part of your brain can only do three things. It can fight, it can run away, or it can freeze and do nothing. Right? And so under certain circumstances, the loss prevention guy is something that we need. Because if the building really is on fire, you don't go ask the brilliant CEO what to do. If you go ask the brilliant CEO what to do when the building's on fire, as he sits back and thinks about it for six minutes, everybody's going to die. Right? So we need the loss prevention guy, but we only need him in the case of emergencies because the only thing that guy knows how to do is to fight or run away or just stop dead in his tracks. So here's the thing. When the alarm bell in our brain sounds... It's like we've got this fire trigger in our brain, and when there is a true disaster, we hit that alarm bell, and in our brain, everything shifts, and we say, we don't need the brilliant CEO in charge right now, because if the brilliant CEO's in charge, we're all going to die. Right now, all we need to do is either fight or run away. That's what we need to do. We've got to figure out which one to do, and we've got to do it fast. And in a legitimate life and death disaster, well, that's why God gave you that part of your brain. But here's what happens in marriage. In marriage, we get really comfortable going to the disaster button all the time for things that are not life and death emergencies. Oh, she looked at me the wrong way. She used the wrong tone of voice with me. Disaster! Hitting the fire alarm. Right? He acted like I didn't discipline our kids the right way. Disaster! Right? Hitting the fire alarm. And all of a sudden, all we know how to do, seriously, is either fight or run away. And some of us are really good at one of those two things. When Wendy and I do marriage seminars, we talk about the fact that there are two kinds of people in this world and they always marry each other. There's runners and there are chasers. Right? The chaser says, we have to talk about this and we have to talk about it right now. We gotta deal with it. Don't you walk away from me. We're gonna have this conversation. And the other person, the, the runner, right, says, oh no, drop it. We're not having this conversation. Leave me alone. Give me some space. I need some time, right? And we have a law that we teach in those seminars. We say the law of runners and chasers is the faster a runner runs, the faster a chaser chases, and the faster a chaser chases, the faster a runner runs. What you have is you have two people who are hitting the alarm bell, but it's probably not a real disaster. So we end up fighting with half of our brain tied behind our back. We get the fastest part of our brain is engaged. We don't have to wait for logic to do anything because it doesn't take much logic to figure out whether to fight or to run away. But as a result of that, the best part of us, the part of us that could actually help the situation is on vacation. So I wanna, I wanna give you three steps that you can use that's gonna help you manage your temper. And I could defend this from a Bible standpoint, I could defend it from a psychology standpoint, I could defend it from a neuropsychology standpoint. I know these are gonna sound simple, but if you do these and if you do them in order, 
You will have control of your temper. And as a matter of fact, if you're like me, you can look back on all the times that you've lost your temper and done something destructive or stupid, and you can tell which one of these got violated, okay? So here we go. This is the first thing you need to do. If you feel that you're getting ready to lose your temper, the very first thing that you need to do is slow down. Slow down, right? Because in slowing down, you are telling your brain, this is not a disaster, we're backing up here, and I want the best part of my brain online to help me process what's going on right now. And the Bible actually gives us a very direct instruction to do this. Let me take you to the book of James, where the Bible says that everybody, everyone, not just somebody who thinks they have a temper problem, not, not just somebody who thinks this is a big issue for them, but all of us, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and look at this, slow to become angry. When we start feeling angry, this is God's instruction in our life. When we start feeling angry, we, get, we need to slow down. Now, why is that important? One very, very important reason, and that is that the faster we think, the fuzzier we think. I mean, this is the reason that game shows are designed the way that they're designed. Give somebody a hard task and a timer because it'll make it way more complex if you don't have very much time to do it. So the faster we try to process things, the more fuzzy they are. I'll give you an example of, of what I'm talking about as far as this is concerned. Um, how many of you were around for the, the dial-up modem era? You've actually used the dial-up modem at some point in time. I'm really depressed by how many people didn't raise their hands. I'm, I'm feeling pretty old right now, actually. Um, but you remember, those of you who did use a dial-up modem, you remember that when you would pull up a news, news story, you know, CNN or something like that, to, to read a news story, there would be that headline photo. And you remember that when it first loaded, it was just a blob, right? There was no definition to it. That first layer of the JPEG would load, and there was just, you couldn't tell at all what it was. And then a couple seconds later, a little more data would filter in, and you'd start to see a little bit more definition, and then a little bit more, and a little bit more. And then you remember that wonderful moment where there, there was this sort of pop of clarity, and you're like, oh, that's the whole picture. That's, that's everything. It finally loaded all the way, right? So when we try to move too fast on something that is happening to us, our spouse says something or does something and we move really fast on it, or, or, or we have a situation that we've noticed and we react really fast, what's happening is we react to the blob. We don't really have the clarity yet. It hasn't all filtered in. There hasn't been that pop that says, okay, I'm seeing the whole thing yet. When my wife and I moved into our home, we bought our home in Derby, uh, it had something I was very excited about. It had an attic, and I was very excited to put decking down in the bottom of the attic, maybe put some shelves in, you know, so we could store stuff. And Well, I never actually got all that done, but whatever. Um, but I was very excited about that, and so when we, first, when we closed in the house, when we first move in, and I get the ladder out, and I'm going to go up and look at the attic, because I hadn't done that yet, and I start to move the little access panel to the attic, and as I do that, I see this coiled up green and brown thing that then lunges at me and begins to wrap itself around my shoulder and arm. I'd never seen a rattlesnake before, but I felt very sure that was what I was in contact with in that moment. And now I have to figure out what are my options, right? So I figured I could either stand there on that ladder and get bit by what was obviously a very poisonous snake, or I could jump off the ladder and I figured if I broke bones landing on the garage floor, that would still be you know, better than being bitten by a rattlesnake. And so I had one foot off the ladder and was really getting ready to leap off of it when the end of the snake came around and I realized that what I was looking at was the end of a garden hose.
Well, I was getting ready to do something really stupid, you know? I, I didn't even want to think about how I'd have to explain that to my wife. We're moving into a new house. We've got boxes to carry. And I'm sorry, sweetheart, I broke my leg in two places because I was attacked by a garden hose. Uh, <clears throat> but that's what happens when we try to act on something before we really have the clarity of knowing what it is that we're dealing with. So we get really upset. We think we know that this is a disaster. It's just a blob. It's just a blob, but we go, disaster, and we hit the button, and all of a sudden, now we can only do one of two things. Remember, we can either fight or we can run away. What the Bible's saying is if we slow down for a minute, wait until we really know what we're looking at, then maybe we'll realize it's not a disaster, and we won't have to hit the fire alarm, and the best part of our brain that can do all kinds of things like compromise and work through a situation, maybe that could still be online. So... Just really quickly, I want to take you to this verse that we started off with. We started off with Proverbs 14, 29, but I want to give it to you in a different translation so that you can see this is what we're talking about. The Bible says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty or a fast temper, that's the person who is the anger exhibitionist. So the Bible's saying if we want to know who just wants to show off their stupidity, it's a person who has a fast temper. So the first thing that we need to do is slow down. And here's a question that you can ask yourself if you're, if you're writing this down and you're trying to use this as a process of dealing with temper. Here's a question you can ask yourself to make sure that you've completed this step. Do I really have clarity? Do I really understand the situation? Or am I trying to operate off of what is really a blob right now? Right? By the way, for those of you who are parents in this room, this is so important. Because we want to parent our kids the best way possible. And we feel that burden. And so we can be really fast to react. We can see that blob and we can think, oh my goodness, I gotta, I gotta react because for, for, the, for the sake of my kids, I can't let them do that. I can't, I can't have them act that way or behave that way. And we can think, I gotta get in there and deal with this immediately. And sometimes we're just looking at a blob. We're not really ready to respond yet because we don't really have clarity. So we need to ask ourselves this question, do I really have clarity? All right, here's the next thing that you need to do. So supposing that you've slowed down adequately, the next thing you need to do, and this is something that my roommate used to say to me in college, he used to say, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> right? <clears throat> and actually, this may be the number one instruction that Jesus gave us about dealing with anger, is that we need to check ourselves. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Let me give you this question that you can ask yourself, and then we'll really go to the Bible and, and, and flesh this out. But the question you need to ask yourself is, am I doing what I should do? Right now, am I doing what I should do? Why we get angry? There's a really simple explanation for what triggers anger in human beings. We get angry because one of our expectations has been violated. See, we walk around every day with shoulds. A husband should do this. A wife should do this. A marriage should operate this way. Finances should be handled this way. Parenting is supposed to be done this way. Kids should behave this way. And when somebody steps on one of our shoulds, it triggers anger. And one of the biggest problems about when we hit that fire alarm and all of a sudden the only thing our brain knows how to do is to fight or to run away, one of the big things that we lose is that the part of our brain that monitors what we're doing also goes on vacation. We're not just fuzzy on what the problem is, we're fuzzy on our own behavior. That's why we start doing things that we're actually not okay with. I, throw the, I threw that phone against the brick fireplace the first year of marriage, years and years ago, but if you'd asked me, even all the way back then, in a calm moment, if you'd said, Jonathan, is it appropriate for people to throw things when they're mad, what do you think I would have said? No but I, I quit monitoring myself. 
I started doing things because I wasn't paying attention to what I was doing. And the first thing that Jesus tells us when, when he starts to talk about this is he says, you need to look at yourself and ask yourself, are you doing the right thing? Regardless of whether somebody else is doing what they should do, are you doing what you should do? Because so often we get, one of my favorite authors on the subject of anger in relationships said that the number one factor of getting angry in relationships is being over-focused on the other person and under-focused on ourselves. Right. Let me show you what Jesus had to say about this. Jesus was teaching in Matthew 7, and he said, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? He says, and how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, so let me help you do what you should do when there is the log in your own eye when you're not doing what you should do? And he says, you know what that is? That's being a hypocrite. You know the definition of hypocrisy? is to try to fix someone else when we're not doing what we're supposed to do. He says, first, you need to take the log out of your own eye. So you need to stop and say, what do I need to do? What, do, what should I do? And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, it's one of those things. I, I, one of the... One of the most embarrassing things that I talk about when my wife and I do marriage seminars, because we want couples to know that we've been through challenges and difficulties. One of the most embarrassing things that I have to admit is that I, on our honeymoon, I was a cranky, difficult, disagreeable, prickly person to be around the whole time we were on our honeymoon. That's embarrassing, right? Do you know why? My wife and I going into marriage, we wanted to follow God's plan as, as best we could. We tried to really be careful and have good boundaries in our relationship. So when I thought forward to the wedding, and especially as a 21-year-old guy, when I thought forward to the honeymoon, I had some shoulds in my head. I had some expectations about what a honeymoon should be, and in my mind, the honeymoon should be Sex Fest 2002. <laughs> right? I honestly didn't see any reason why there was a need for anything else in the honeymoon. Going and doing other stuff, you know... I, I didn't really understand why on earth would we need to do any of those other things. After all, this is what a honeymoon is for. Now, interestingly enough, I found out that my wife didn't feel exactly the same way that I felt. And do you know what happened? I became disagreeable, prickly, angry, frustrated, and it caused a lot of fights in what should have been one of the greatest weeks of my wife and my life. Do you know why it happened? I was so focused on what I thought should be the case and that, and that it wasn't, that I'd forgotten to ask, am I doing what I should do? See, I, I wrecked that week. I'll take responsibility for it. In front of 6,000 people over a weekend, I will take responsibility for the fact that I wrecked our honeymoon. You know why? Because I wasn't checking myself. See, we need to check yourself. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. All right, here's the, uh, and, and actually, before I move on to the last thing, I wanna take you to, a, to one of the first stories of anger in the Bible. In the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter four, we have the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain brought a sacrifice to God, just as Abel did, but God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice because Cain didn't do what God had asked him to do. So Abel's sacrifice was accepted, Cain's wasn't, and Cain was mad. Interestingly enough, Cain wasn't mad at God, Cain was mad at Abel. He felt like the guy's throwing me under the bus, he's showing me up, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. God likes Abel, God doesn't like me, and he got mad at Abel. And he was seething with rage. And God comes to Cain and talks to him about it. And I want you to notice that nowhere in this passage does God ever mention Abel, not once. It's all between God and Cain. He says, why are you so angry? 
He says, why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. When we lose our temper and we feel like we're spinning out of control, it's because we lost track of what we're doing and sin has gotten control of the steering wheel and now we're just going for that wall. So let me give you the third thing quickly. So the first thing we said is you need to slow down. Second thing is you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Now the third thing, and I'm gonna give you this warning ahead of time, the third thing is what most people try to do when they feel angry. But because they haven't done the first two things, this always backfires. The only way this will work is if you do the first two things first. First you need to slow down, then you need to check yourself. If you do that, then the third thing will work. And the third thing is to do the helpful thing. I've done marriage coaching now for eight years, and I know this. If I interview a couple in the middle of a fight, and they're both being angry with each other, and they're both being destructive, if I ask them why they're doing what they're doing, they're going to tell me it's because they're trying to help the situation. My husband is just a jerk, and I'm trying to help him be a decent human being. If he would only listen to me, then I could help fix him. Or my wife is just an unagreeable, you know, distant person, and she doesn't understand. I'm trying to help my wife understand what's wrong with her. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about really doing the helpful thing, right? The Bible says do the helpful thing. Let me give you this question, right? So I told you I'm giving you three steps and three questions you can use to kind of help evaluate whether you're there or not. Here's the, here's the question. The question is, is what I'm about to do or say going to make the situation better or is it going to make the situation worse? See, so often we're trying to fix the problem. We need to ask, but is what I'm getting ready to do to fix the problem going to make the situation better, or is it going to make it worse? Is this going to add to my spouse's life, or is it going to take away? Is this going to make this day better, or is it going to make the day worse? we got to ask ourselves that kind of question. Let me take you to a passage in Ephesians. It's one of my favorite passages in the chapter, chapter 5, where Paul says, you need to be very careful then how you live not as unwise. Remember what the Bible said about unwise people? They're stupidity exhibitionists. He said, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, what does the Bible mean when it says, be very careful how you live? And you may have a translation that says, be very careful how you walk. Or you may have a translation that says, look all around you as you walk. And the reason for that is because the Apostle Paul actually was trying to use a metaphor. He was trying to use a metaphor of how we walk and and using that in relationship to how we live. Um, And One of my favorite preachers in the country, Andy Stanley, said this about this passage, and I've never forgotten it, and I want to repeat it here, but I want to give him credit for it. Um, Andy said this. He says, anybody who has a large dog and a small yard understands what it means to say, look all around you as you step. Right? I have a medium-sized dog and a medium-sized yard, but I get his point, right? You know why I have to be careful where I walk? Because there's little bits of evil scattered all over my yard... You have to be careful about that. If I step in it, I will make it worse. You know what? It would be nice if we lived in a world where there was no evil. It would be nice if we lived in a world where there's no imperfection. But what Paul's trying to remind us is that is the default. Ever since our first parents chose the dark side, we've lived in an imperfect world. It's imperfect by default. And human beings have been imperfect by default. So it means that situations, by default, are not going to be what they should be. And there are going to be a lot of things about your spouse that by default are not going to be what they should be. So many of us are hoping for a perfect marriage or hoping for a perfect spouse. It doesn't exist, and it's not their fault. You married an imperfect person, but so did they. 
right? That's all, the, that's all that there was to choose from. The Bible is saying that because there is imperfection scattered around our world, and even scattered within the person that I am and scattered within the person that I married, I have to be very careful where I step or I can make it worse. Now, what does it mean, be careful where you step? Check this out. It says, you need to make the most of every opportunity, or you may have a a passage that says, redeeming the time. And the word redeem means to take something where value has been lost and add the value back in. Try to take something that's been broken or has, has been compromised in some way and add value back to it. Find a way to bring value back to it. So what, what the Bible is saying is you have to be careful where you step because instead of making things worse, you want to bring value to what is already kind of a difficult situation. So let me ask you, the moments you're proudest of in your marriage where there was some conflict but it really went well, isn't that what happened? Isn't it that it started off as kind of a bad situation and somehow you found a way to bring value back to it? Or somehow your, your spouse found a way to bring value back to what started off as kind of a bad situation? One of my favorite stories um, is a story that was told by Tony Dungy. He was talking about um, his dad, who was uh, a lover of the outdoors. Wilbur Dungy loved to take his kids outdoors and teach them stuff about hunting and fishing and so forth. And so one day, Wilbur took his sons, uh, Tony and Lyndon, out to go fishing. And, and Tony was nine. He'd been fishing quite a bit, so he was kind of off on his own, doing his own thing. But his little brother, Lyndon, was only five, and his dad was trying to teach him how to cast. And so he was not paying a whole lot of attention to that. And all of a sudden, uh, Tony hears his dad say, Lyndon, wait just a second. Do me a favor, don't move for just a second, please. By the way, Lyndon, I just want to remind you, when, when you cast, you need to not only know where your pole is, but you also need to look around you and make sure you're aware of who all else is around you at that moment. And Tony looked back, and at that moment, he saw his dad working a fish hook out of his ear. He said that years later, he would be fishing as an adult, and a fish spit a hook out, and it... it lodged in his hand. And he said, after working that fish hook out and feeling the pain of what it felt like to get hooked and the the pain of what it felt like to to get that out, he said, he thought back to how much pain his dad must have been in as he was trying to work that fish hook out of his ear. And he he, he said, my dad could have yelled and lost his temper. He could have told told my little brother that he just wasn't careful enough, and he and he, and he could have just flown off the rails, and he or or he, or he could have just walked off and said, I'm too too upset to talk right now, and and ruined the whole experience. And he said, and somehow my dad was strong enough to, to bring calm and peace and actually make that a teaching moment. See, I talk to some people who tell me, you know what, Jonathan, I'm just an angry person. You can talk to me about anger all day long, conflict with my spouse. It's not going to change anything. I've tried. I've tried to change it. I just know I'm an angry person. My mom was an angry person. My grandma was an angry person. My great-granddad was an angry person come from a long line of angry people. It's just going to be that way for the whole rest of my life. And they'll tell me, you know, it's just my personality. It's just baked into who I am as a person. No, it's not. It's not. It's just that the fire alarm has become your go-to. Something, something strikes you wrong, and you, it's a disaster, and you ring the fire alarm. No, you, you have so much to bring to these situations that you, that you should never convince yourself that you're not prepared to, to, to really bring the best part of you to the difficult moments of your marriage. You are. You just have to slow down. 
Look inside. Make sure you're doing what you should do. And then do the helpful thing that's going to make the situation better and not worse. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you love us and that even when we let you down, even when we're imperfect, you're still patient with us. You're still kind with us. And you still do things that add to our lives. We pray that you would help us to follow your example. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here with us. We'll see you next week.